The stencil of Nicholson's yard would have endorned a multitude of different vessels from the wooden canal barges and schooners of the 19th century to the trawlers, dredges or other metal-bodied steam or diesel-powered ships that are still seen today. Join us for another episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects, Stories from Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts and I'm the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums. In this series, we're looking at 100 objects from Lancaster, Morecambe and the surrounding area to celebrate a century of our museums and to find out more about the past and how we relate to it now. Our object today is not an expensive luxury good, but a working object which was used in an industrial setting for many years. It helped stamp the name of an important local business on the side of many ships. Today's object is a stencil from Nicholson's Shipbuilders of Glass and Dock. The stencil is made out of dark grey metal, from which the letters have been stamped out. It's rectangular and just a little bit larger than an A3 piece of paper. Due to its usage on the dockyards, the surface has become rough and pitted, and there are small sections of damage at the edges and between the letters. However, you can still clearly read what it says. Nicholson's, Glass and Dock Limited, Makers, near Lancaster. This stencil would have been placed against the hulls of ships made at Nicholson's shipyard, so that paint could be applied over the top of it to show where the ship had been constructed. Nicholson's was central to life at Glass and Dock, and made and repaired ships for many decades. Alex Pomeroy, a student at Lancaster University, looked at the history behind this object and told us a little bit more about the company. He began by telling us about Glass and Dock, the community that housed Nicholson's. Glass and Dock exists today. It's a quaint coastal community on the Loon, just before the river meets the Irish Sea around Sunderland Point. It's about five miles south of Lancaster Centre itself, and as of 2011, it had a population of about 600 people. What we now know as the area of Glass and Dock came into being properly in 1779, when the Lancaster Port Commission decided to overcome the issues that merchant vessels were having navigating the Loon close to Lancaster by building a new dock closer to the mouth of the sea. So even though large ships continued to use St George's Quay in Lancaster, it was beginning to be overshadowed by bigger ports such as those at Liverpool and Bristol, which didn't suffer from the same silting issues that Lancaster did, which made it difficult for some of the largest ships to get up to the port. So the Port Commission has purchased land around Glass and Dock in 1780, and by 1782 construction was underway. Before this point, the small farming and fishing community was principally based in the area now known as Old Glasson. Construction of the docks, however, did not go smoothly. The hastily constructed pier started to collapse as soon as August 1782, and the Port Commission has asked Henry Berry to draft new plans. He had designed and engineered the modern dockyards in Liverpool and Hull, but he was too busy to take the work on. Therefore, Thomas Morris, who would later engineer new docks in London and Liverpool, was chosen to draft a new design for Glasson Dock. Planning a loan for this project cost £2,700 back in the day, which is about £328,000 in today's money. And by March 1787, the docks were complete, with a capacity to hold up to 25 merchant vessels. At the time, only two other structures existed when the new pier and docks were complete one being Pier Hall, which became an inn, and the other being the old ship house, which was the hulk of a grounded West Indiaman, which was an inn of sorts for sailors. After a few years, it was decided that the embryonic Lancaster Canal system should connect to Glasson Dock to ease the transport of goods into Lancaster in the pre-railway era. An initial private act of Parliament failed to generate any progress, and so it took until 1819 for the plans to be revived to enable the Glasson Dock branch to materialise. 
By 1825, the canal link was complete at a cost of £34,608, or around £2.4 million today, but trade initially remained rather slow as the docks were still lacking sufficient infrastructure for the large amounts of goods, such as warehouses and cranes. However, by 1830, more than 10,000 tonnes of shipping were passing through a glass and docks and onto Lancaster. Indeed, the canal had been purposely built wide enough to allow small merchant vessels to sail straight through to Lancaster to speed up deliveries. A further transport link arrived in the 1880s as the London and North Western Railway built a branch line to connect the docks to Lancaster Castle Station. The success of Glasson Dock did not dramatically increase the size of the local community, however, as Lancaster remained the principal destination for the majority of shipping which passed through. The population did increase somewhat, and throughout the 19th century, numerous new buildings and workers' cottages were constructed and remain today, such as those on Tenrow and Tithebarn Hill. The docks were also modernised with an improved shipyard and customs house in 1834, a watch house in 1836 and a valuable dry dock in 1840. Trade continued up until the outbreak of hostilities in September 1939, but a marker of the lack of drastic change in glass and dock as a community can be seen through the closure of passenger services on the railway line in July 1930. Next, Alex told us how a man named James Penny Nicholson arrived in glass and dock to start his shipbuilding business. In many ways, James Penny Nicholson was archetypal of the many entrepreneurs of the 19th century as industrialisation gradually occurred across the British Isles. Like many of the successful merchants and traders of the preceding Georgian era, Nicholson grew up in a small rural community and made his fortune in the nearest large town, which was Lancaster in his case. Born in Burton in Kendall in 1796 and originally served two apprenticeships in Ulverston as a draper, which enabled him to set up his own firm in Lancaster at the age of 22. His shop was on Cheapside in the town centre and was rather prosperous. He retired in 1836 at the age of 40 when his first wife, Agnes Holmes, passed away. And this is where the shipbuilding story comes in, as if you remember we're on the cusp of the development of glass and docks, a new shipyard and dock facilities in this period. And Nicholson himself quickly remarried to a lady called Anna Wayne, whose uncle Leonard Simpson was involved in shipbuilding in Liverpool, so there's obviously a connection there. During the same year, he used his profits from his draper's shop to lease land off the Lancaster Port Commission to open up Nicholson Shipyard in Glass and Dock. He would then join the commission for the next 13 years. The industry was well and truly a family affair. James was in partnership with Leonard Simpson's two sons, Daniel and Matthew Simpson, and together they oversaw the construction of more than 50 wooden vessels of lengths up to 350 feet long. James lived near the dry dock on Thurnham Terrace, which survives today, and his strong Anglican faith led to the funding of Christ Church, which was built in 1840, as a place of worship for his workers. Thus, he was very much the stereotypical Victorian businessman, with strong connections to the idea of the Protestant work ethic. However, by the 1850s, the industry was already experiencing a lull in business. Therefore, both James Penny Nicholson and Daniel Simpson left to find a better life for their families. Daniel emigrated to New Zealand, whilst Nicholson took his family to Australia where they ran a successful timber business from 1856 to 1871 in Victoria during the gold rush years, before moving to Melbourne in 1873. James died in 1885 at the age of around 88 or 89. Matthew Simpson remained in glass and dock to run Nicholson's yard for the rest of his life and oversaw the building and repair business in the next decades. By 1900, wooden sailing vessels were giving way to metal-hulled steam-powered craft, which Nicholson's lacked sufficient space to build themselves. However, they were able to repair and maintain more modern vessels in their dry dock, and that was a state of play by the time of war in 1939. What sort of work was carried out at Nicholson's? What sort of ships did they work on, and did they only carry out maritime-related work? 
The boats that were built at Nicholson's in the 19th century were generally schooner-type vessels, but the very first was the 70-foot canal barge Acorn of 1837. So whilst other types of vessels were built, the speciality vessel of Nicholson's were schooners. They were relatively small, cheap to build and easy for their crews to operate. They weren't overly large but could store quite a lot of cargo whilst being able to maintain decent speed. So they were perfect for legal roles like fishing, merchant sailing, harbour pilot duties or even smaller Royal Naval vessels. But they were also quite commonly found in illegal roles such as privateers, ships, blockade runners, small slaving vessels or opium clippers. The final big boat to be constructed at Nicholson's was Argus of 1907, a schooner destined for pilot duties in Barrow, though smaller craft continued to be built afterwards. The yard mainly specialised in repair and maintenance, and the Maritimes Museum store contains dozens of logs from the mid-1930s to the early 50s which detail the work carried out on each vessel and the cost of such work. The work could be something as menial as the replacement of old rivets and decking to the wholesale repair of entire sections of damaged hull, or the building of major components from scratch. The records held in the Maritime Museum archives cast light onto the multitude of tasks undertaken by Nicholson's. For example, within the folder Steamers Book 1 of 1940, we can find that the SS Asperity was held in Nicholson's yard for a boiler clean in April, whilst the SS Isleman arrived for a general survey, which is presumably the equivalent of a car's MOT today. Another book of quotations from 1935 lists the vessels Sea Fisher and Bay Fisher as in for repair for the replacement of loose rivets and bottom damage respectively. Nicholson's records also highlight the partnerships they had with local firms and individuals in the region. Vessels were repaired on both the request of private owners and larger regional shipping companies. For example, one record catalogues the works Nicholson did for Boston Deep Sea Fisheries, based in nearby Fleetwood, whilst another recorded the repairs on James Fisher & Sons vessels, a shipping and insurance company based in Barrow and Finesse, which still survives to this day. The stencil of Nicholson's yard would have endowed a multitude of different vessels throughout the company's existence, from the wooden canal barges and schooners of the 19th century to the trawlers, dredges or other metal-bodied, steam or diesel-powered ships that are still seen today. A pair of later-dated records also demonstrate the odd jobs that Nicholson's undertook as they looked to move away from solely maritime-based work. One record labelled Miscellaneous, 1940, detailed the construction of window frames for Lancaster Police, steel plates for Lancaster Gasworks, and repairs to the toilets at Victoria Hotel. Another miscellaneous book from 1948 highlights the repair of a tar spreader for Carnforth Council, as well as work for the Balfour Beatty Construction Company. Alex told us about some of the most interesting ships that he came across when looking into the Nicholson's logbooks. One quite interesting tale is that of the slave ship Success, built in 1840 in British Burma, which is now Myanmar, and was originally an armed East Indiaman until the British government chartered it to sail to the penal colony of Australia as a prison transport. Success performed this horrendous task until 1851 when it was decided that the vessel would become a permanent prison hulk at Hobson's Bay in Australia. The conditions on these hulks were infamous for their cruelty. The worst classes of prisoners were kept on the lowest deck and nobody was allowed more than an hour of fresh air and exercise per day. When the hulk system was finally outlawed in 1868, success performed several roles until the government decreed that all former hulks were to be scrapped to erase a dark chapter of Australia's history. Somehow, success became the only former hulk to avoid this fate and was instead scuttled in Sydney Harbour in 1885. By 1890, a syndicate had formed to raise and restore the vessel as an educational piece. 
Fast forward 20 years and success was restored to seaworthy condition under command of Captain John Price of Indiana, who sailed the historic vessel to Boston Harbour from Glass and Dock. Now, Nicholson's did not seem to take any part in the restoration or maintenance of the vessel, but the arrival of such an incredible piece of history clearly drummed up quite a lot of local interest, as a selection of photos that survive in the archives. After nearly 50 years of work as a museum ship, one that was more miffed than fact, success was sadly destroyed by a fire while berthed in Lake Erie in 1946. My personal interest as a military historian is the tale of Dutch naval vessels and admiralty yachts and whatnot during the war years. During the Second World War, Nicholson's continued to complete work for both civilian customers as well as some rather interesting jobs on behalf of the Royal Navy and their allies. This included repair work on the Admiralty yacht HMY Lady Blanche, which served as an anti-submarine vessel and later as accommodation for personnel. From 1943 to 1945, the yard also frequently repaired and maintained several requisitioned trawlers and sailing vessels which were under naval ownership as torpedo recovery craft typically smaller vessels which were used in the development of new types of torpedoes. However, perhaps the most interesting tale was the arrival of two Royal Netherlands naval destroyers in early 1943, known as G-15 and G-13. These were elderly vessels built before the Great War and were intended for coastal defence role and already long obsolete by 1918, never mind 1939. Nonetheless, both vessels were evacuated during the fall of the Netherlands in May 1940 to form part of the Dutch Navy in exile, first based in Falmouth and then Holyhead. The Dutch decommissioned them in December 1940, but they were briefly transferred to the Royal Navy to guard Belfast Harbour until late 1942. A few weeks later, they arrived in Glass and Dock to be stripped of useful components at Nicholson's before they were scrapped by T.W. Ward in Preston, who also had premises in Morecambe. These stories, aside from just being interesting anecdotes of people with an interest in historic vessels, serve to link Nicholson's Yard and Glass and Dock to more global events. Whilst it was never the busiest port or the largest company in the world, they still played their part in the history of a prison hulk as well as contributing to the Allied war effort during the Second World War. So how large did the company become at its peak? And how did it come to an end in the post-war years? Sadly, exact figures for workers' numbers don't seem to have survived. However, we can garner some idea of the size of the company and the lives of the employees from the material remains. The Maritime Museum's archive held a selection of excellent photographs which detail Nicholson's yard throughout the late 19th century into the early 20th century. What becomes immediately clear from these photographs is the manner of labour carried out in the yard. Many photographs depict vessels laid up in a dry dock supported awkwardly by huge timber beams to allow workers to access the hull from all angles, which is clearly very filthy and difficult work without a great deal of health and safety precaution as you might expect. Aerial photographs also enable a good grasp of the scale of even a smaller firm like Nicholson's. The dry dock was large and accompanied by similar sized warehouses and outbuildings. Documents in the archive show that even into the 1950s when trade was winding down somewhat, numerous large vessels were still being worked on annually. We can also look to the historian Andrew White's study on Glass and Dock to gain an insight into the lives of Nicholson's workers, as several rows of cottages were built for the purposes of housing them. Those on 10 row were mainly inhabited by workers at Nicholson's, who paid an annual rent of £5.10 shillings for the privilege, while those on Tithe Barn Hill, originally split into Fernham Terrace and Canal Street, were slightly bigger and more expensive. It's clear by the surviving records that as the 50s dawned, the amount of work that was available for the company was becoming less and less. This coincided with the turn to the manufacture of spare parts of cars and silences as the marine side of the business slowly wound down. Repair and maintenance work finally ceased in 1960, the end of 124 years of service to the maritime industry, and in 1968, Nicholson's folded altogether after 132 years. The demise of Nicholson's was very much part of the downturn of shipping through Glaston Dock following the end of the Second World War. 
In September 1964, the railway line to Lancaster was closed by British Railways. It had long since become dilapidated and the cost of continuing to move freight by rail to Lancaster was seen as uneconomic. The dry dock was then filled in cement during 1969 and thus removing a major marker of Nicholson's existence. However, Glass and Dock is still in use as a commercial port today, with outgoing coal traffic to the Isle of Man and Outer Hebrides, with animal feed, fertiliser and other such farming goods forming the bulk of income in shipping. Around 150,000 tonnes pass through each year, and the docks are also home to numerous yachts and other pleasure vessels. It isn't immediately clear that any significant facilities for the repair or construction of ships was ever present in Glass and Dock, which makes the surviving photographical collection and items such as our stencil even more valuable in preserving the history of local industry in North Lancashire. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There's lots more episodes where we discuss everything from Romans to railways. 